In this morning's passage, we are introduced to a group of men who will become the arch enemies of Jesus and of his messianic mission. A group from, or a group which from this point on will plot Jesus' destruction until they finally succeed in having him nailed to a cross. Men for whom Jesus reserves his most scathing condemnations, calling them hypocrites, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, serpents, a brood of vipers, sons of hell. The Pharisees most likely emerged out of a group known as the Hasidim in the second century BC in the aftermath for you history buffs out there, of the Maccabean Revolt. The Hasidim, which is Hebrew for the pious ones, were basically the Jewish reformers of post-Hellenistic Israel. See, much had changed in Israel since the day when they were a sovereign nation. From the time of the Babylonian invasion and the consequent destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the Jews in 586 BC, Israel was subject to one ruling power after another in the land of Palestine. First came the Babylonians, and then came the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks, or the Hellenists. Each of these world empires brought enormous cultural change to bear upon the people of Israel, but none more so than the Greeks. Historian and scholar Everett Ferguson writes this, quote, the old Orthodox Jews were scandalized to see the young aristocrats in Jerusalem wearing the, the broad-brimmed Greek hat. They said, by, your, by their hats you shall know them. Or to hear of the young priests who were hastening to finish their duties at the temple so that they could go exercise naked at the gymnasium. Or worst of all, to learn that some youths underwent an operation to hide their circumcision so as not to be ridiculed by the Greeks. End quote. It's against such cultural compromises that the pious of Israel, the Hasidim, revolted. And after Israel had won its independence from the Seleucid ruler Antiochus Epiphanes in 164 BC, the Hasidim set about trying to reform Judaism and to reverse these Hellenizing influences that had come in over the last couple hundred years. They wanted to return the nation of Israel back to the Torah and back to the covenant. And although it is uncertain, the prevailing theory is that Pharisaism grew out of this Hasidic reform movement. In, Her- in Hebrew, the word Pharisees, parush, means separated one or holy one, which reflects their utmost concern for both ritual and ceremonial purity. They place the utmost value on the Torah, the law of Moses. But they also understood that the Torah which had been given 1,500 years prior, it needed to be interpreted and it needed to be applied to a new and ever-changing circumstance facing Israel. For example, 
Everyone knew that the Torah forbid working on Sunday, but the question arose, what is work? What constitutes work? And so what grew up around the Torah as a result of this movement was that these Pharisees accumulated massive amounts of oral rabbinic tradition. They called it the halakha, which means the tradition of the elders. And this tradition interpreted and applied the Torah to the present circumstances of life facing facing Israel. And the Pharisees considered this tradition to be on an equal par and of equal authority with the Torah itself. And by the time of Jesus, by the turn of the first century... The Pharisees had become the dominant religious force in Israel, and they remained so for centuries. The Pharisees and the scribes, who are often linked together, scribes were the official scholars of the Torah, and many of them were Pharisees themselves, they were universally acknowledged as the experts in the interpretation and the application of Scripture. So if the If the Jerusalem temple and the sacrifices were the realm of the priests and the Sadducees, the synagogues and the scriptures were the domain of the scribes and the Pharisees. Therefore, unless unless you actually lived in Jerusalem, the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious authority in Israel and in Judaism around the world. So what was it about the Pharisees that drew the ire of Jesus and provoked such strong condemnation from his lips. Well, on the surface, I think we'd have to admit that there's a lot to commend the Pharisees. They valued the Scriptures and they sought to live in obedience to them. What's wrong with that? They did not compromise with the surrounding Greco-Roman culture with its pagan immorality and immodesty and frivolity. They believed the Bible, they believed in the resurrection of the body, and they believed in a coming day of judgment. They were culturally conservative, they were doctrinally orthodox, they were religiously fundamental, and they were theologically reformed. In other words... They are not so different from us. And that point alone ought to give us pause. When Jesus calls people who resemble us sons of hell. The Pharisees were not pagans. They did not worship false gods. They did not visit temple prostitutes. They did not frequent Greek gymnasiums. They were outwardly moral men committed to the Scriptures, covenanted to the law. They were God's men, and yet they hated Jesus. And Jesus reserved for them His most scathing condemnations. This is what makes the passages before us over the next two weeks so piercing. Because modern-day Pharisees are not found out in the world. They are found in the church, and specifically in churches like us. They're not found in the liberal churches that don't believe the Bible anymore. They're found in conservative churches. 
And so we need to beware. Because we too, I think, are morally conservative in the sense that we resist compromise with the godless, immoral, materialistic culture that surrounds us. We too are doctrinally orthodox in that we believe in the authority of Scripture and we strive for theological precision and depth. We too are theologically reformed in that we trace our roots to a reform movement, the Reformation of the 16th century, which sought to reform the church and return it to faithfulness to both New Testament doctrine and practice. Therefore, I suggest to you that we face the same danger which ensnared the Pharisees and held them in bondage. And that danger has a name. It is legalism. My aim over the next two weeks is to identify and define legalism by looking at four encounters which Jesus had with the Pharisees as recorded in Mark 2.13 all the way to chapter 3 and verse 6. These four distinct encounters are tied together by three common elements. They all bear these three marks. Number one, they all begin with something that Jesus does, like eating with tax collectors and sinners or healing a man on the Sabbath, or something his disciples do, like plucking the heads of grain on the Sabbath, or something his disciples don't do, like fasting. Number two, In each of these encounters, the Pharisees raise an objection to these actions or inactions on the part of Jesus and his disciples, an objection that is grounded in their rabbinic tradition, the way they understand and apply Scripture. And number three, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' objections in all four encounters with penetrating statements about his messianic identity and mission and the intent and extent of the law. So these four encounters will help us to define what legalism is, to see why it's so deadly for a church like ours, and to see how we can guard against the legalistic tendency that is inherent even in our church. Before we do, however, I need to define what legalism is not. Because there's a lot of confusion regarding this term in today's evangelical culture. You'll hear a lot of people speak out against legalism, and what they're actually doing is speaking out against holiness. They're not the same thing. It's common today to hear people equate legalism with obedience to Scripture. That's not what legalism is. Jesus, hear me, loves holiness. He calls all who would follow him to obey his commands. And at the same time that he loves holiness and he requires obedience, he hates legalism. So legalism cannot mean the same thing. It cannot be equated with holiness and obedience. It is not legalism to refuse to engage in sexual immorality. It is not legalism to refrain from drunkenness and debauchery. 
It is not legalism to avoid gossip or slander or coarse joking. It is not legalism to swim against the cultural stream by rejecting the overt sensuality and crass materialism of our Western culture. Obedience to Scripture and a desire and effort to conform one's life to scriptural norms is not legalism, it's godliness. So don't equate legalism with holiness. Holiness is the essential evidence of all true saving faith such that without holiness, none of us will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. So what is legalism exactly? I'm going to give you a definition and then we're going to spend the next two weeks unpacking it. As we look at these four encounters between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, in which Jesus is going to point out the fatal flaw in their religious outlook. So here goes. Here's my definition of legalism. Legalism is the performance of moral or religious works in the power of one's own strength for the purpose of establishing one's own righteousness to the end that one may merit God's blessing and favor. Every part of that definition is vital. Let me run it by you one more time. Legalism is the performance of moral or religious works in the power of one's own strength for the purpose of establishing one's own righteousness to the end that one may merit God's blessing and favor. And the horrific and ugly and inevitable consequence of legalism is that it produces in the heart of the legalist a wretched pride and a judgmental and loveless disdain for those they perceive do not measure up. Legalism was the disease that infected the hearts of the Pharisees. It made them the arch enemies of Jesus because legalism is the antithesis of the gospel. So I suggest to us, First Baptist Nixa, together, because I'm not immune from this disease, I suggest that we need to beware of the insidious poison which is the unique temptation of people like us. People like us who love the Bible, love doctrine, and pursue holiness. If you don't love the Bible, you don't have a problem with legalism. If you don't love doctrine, you won't have a problem with legalism And if you don't care about holiness, you're not going to struggle with legalism. The Pharisees prove that it is quite possible to know the Scriptures like the back of your hand, to be orthodox in your theology and your doctrine, to be moral and upright in the manner of your life, and yet have absolutely no love for Christ or for people, and therefore to miss out on the gospel entirely. So my prayer over the next two weeks is that God would grant us grace that we may examine our hearts and our church as we explore these four encounters. So over the next two weeks, I'm going to give you four characteristics of legalists, one from each encounter. We'll cover the first two this week and come to the next two 
next week. Four characteristics of Pharisees, both ancient and modern. Characteristic number one, legalists do not understand the gospel. I think this is the main point of the first encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees, which is recorded in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2. Let's read it together. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the account begins with Jesus by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, presumably once again near the city of Capernaum. And as was his custom, he's, he's teaching the multitudes who came out to see him and to hear him. He's teaching them about repentance and faith and the kingdom of God. And it's there beside the sea that Jesus encounters Levi, the son of Alphaeus, who is sitting in his tax booth. Now, the flow of the narrative suggests that Levi's tax booth was there beside the sea, meaning that he was probably there to collect customs or taxes on Capernaum's thriving fishing industry. So, not only was he not very well liked by Jews in general, but he was pretty much hated by the fishermen. At any rate, Jesus stops and he looks at Levi and he utters that sovereign, irresistible, life-altering, resistance-shattering summons, follow me. A summons that he's issued to many of us. And Levi does. Immediately and without reservation. Complete, utter, unconditional, joyful surrender. Levi is the same disciple who is elsewhere called Matthew. Whether this is an alternative name which Levi already had or a new name which Jesus gave him at some later point, we don't know. One commentator speculates that in the same way that Jesus had changed Simon's name to Peter, which means rock, signifying that Peter was to become the rock or the foundation upon which Christ would build his church. It's possible also that Jesus has changed Levi's name to Matthew. Matthew means gift of God, signifying that this, this tax collector who once just took, 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 took from his people, God was going to turn into a gift who would give to his people. I like that thought. There's no way to prove it. At any rate, out of his newfound joy, Levi hosts a dinner. I like this. He gets converted, so what does he do? He, he throws a party. Why? Because his heart is bursting with joy. He throws a party at his house in Jesus' honor, and, he, and he, he doesn't know better yet to, but to invite all of his friends. And so he invites all of his tax collector sinner friends to come and to see and to hear this man who has so radically changed his life. And it's this dinner party at Levi's house, Matthew's house, that causes the scandal which becomes the focal point of this narrative. 
So Mark records that attending this dinner party with Jesus and his disciples were many tax collectors and sinners. All right? Who are these tax collectors? Let's, let's define this term for a moment. The Romans practiced a system, not just in Palestine, but around their empire, known as tax farming. And what they would do, essentially, they farmed out the right to collect taxes in a particular district to locals who were willing to purchase a tax franchise. Now, the Roman government would assess a fixed tax figure for the district, which the tax collectors were required to collect and to hand over, but the Romans paid little attention to what was collected over and above that fixed rate. So you can see that the opportunities abounded for extortion. And the citizens had very little to no recourse if they were being extorted. Tax collectors like Levi and Zacchaeus in Luke 19 therefore grew wealthy on the backs of their countrymen. The type of men who held such positions were dishonest, greedy, irreligious, because observant Jews would never have conducted business with Roman Gentiles. Therefore, tax collectors were viewed as treasonous and unclean and were easily, easily the most hated and despised segments of Jewish society. Rabbinic tradition dictated that tax collectors were disqualified uh, from serving as a judge or a witness in court. They were excommunicated from the synagogue and their touch, even their touch, could render a person or their house unclean. Sinners, you see that next term, was simply a catch-all term which the Pharisees used for those who did not regulate their lives according to scribal tradition. William Lane says that along with the derisive epithet, people of the land, the the scribes often often dismissed as inconsequential the common people who possessed neither time nor inclination to regulate their conduct by Pharisaic standards. The designation sinners, as used by the scribes, is roughly equivalent to outcasts. So this explains the offense which the Pharisees took when they saw Jesus and his disciples sitting in Levi's home and eating with tax collectors and sinners. To their mind, this act rendered Jesus unclean and therefore disqualified him from being a a rabbi or a prophet, not not the least of which a Messiah. So Jesus' response to them cuts to the heart and reveals the first and fundamental problem with the legalism of Pharisees then and now. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. They did not understand Jesus' mission. They did not understand the gospel, and therefore they did not understand Christ. They couldn't comprehend him. Their, Their entire religious system, their entire life, was based upon a system of merit wherein one follows all of the rules, obeys all of the laws, scrupulously guards his state of ritual cleanliness and ceremonial purity, and in so doing, he establishes his own righteousness and earns God's blessing. 
that's the way they operated, and it was to them as clear as day. This system of merit had the effect of producing within them, as you see throughout the Gospels, an insufferable self-righteousness and a sense of superiority and pride which blinded them to their own sin and to the depravity of their own hearts and caused them to view others who did not measure up to the same standards that they viewed themselves as having attained to with disdain and contempt. It's against this self-righteousness that Jesus here speaks. The Pharisees thought that Jesus was like them. Or at least they thought that he should be like them. Separated from sinners who would defile him with their uncleanness. And instead, Jesus responds by saying, I did not come to be a Pharisee. I came to be a physician. And physicians do not isolate themselves from the sick. They go to the sick. They receive the sick. They touch the sick. And they heal the sick. And Jesus' words here are dripping with irony. Because the reality is, here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that these people are sick and they need a physician, whereas you are well and you don't need a savior. That's not Jesus' point. He's being sarcastic here. He's being ironic. And this is not the only place. Because the Pharisees were not so well as they thought. They were infected with a terminal disease far worse than the sickness which beset the tax collectors and sinners. Because the disease that the Pharisees had had the effect of blinding them to their sin and causing them to scorn the only physician who could heal them. And so, at the end of the day, the tax collectors and sinners go home justified and clean and whole, and the Pharisees remain infected and diseased and defiled and dead. In spite of their external morality, in spite of their biblical knowledge, in spite of their doctrinal orthodoxy, the Pharisees missed the main point of the Old Testament, the main theme of Scripture. And so when that main point and main theme appeared in the person of the Messiah, they missed him as well. Indeed, they hated him and they put him to death. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul described the situation like this. He said, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in me will never be put to shame. Here's the problem. The problem was that Israel knew they needed righteousness, but they imagined that they could produce it on their own by their own efforts, in their own strength, through their own works. 
That's the essence of legalism. Whether it's in first century Israel or whether it's in the 21st century church, legalism is the performance of moral and religious works, reading your Bible, coming to church, teaching a connect group, serving in the nursery, serving at the craft show on Saturday, whatever it may be, moral or religious works, staying away from certain sins, not going places people of the world go, not watching things people of the world watch. It's the performance of moral or religious works in the power of one's own strength for the purpose of establishing one's own righteousness. The problem is not with the morality or with the religiosity. It's with the power and the purpose of those moral and religious works. In the strength of their own power and for the purpose of establishing their own righteousness to the end that one may merit God's blessing and favor. And this attempt to establish their own righteousness, to solidify their own standing before God and their own entrance into his kingdom is antithetical to the gospel. Mark my words, which are really Jesus' words, a sinner cannot produce righteousness any more than a bad tree can produce good fruit. That's why it's futile. Every perceived righteousness that a legalist produces, every time he steps foot in church, every time he opens up his Bible, every time he teaches his connect class, he is merely producing more sin. Because every effort that he makes is infected with pride and the desire to put God in his debt. And to obligate God to look upon his efforts and reward him. And therefore his supposed righteousness is no righteousness at all. All the religious efforts of legalists simply add to their guilt before God. Legalism is therefore the essence of futility. And that's why Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So listen to me, beloved. If we would be saved, we need a righteousness that we simply cannot produce. We need a righteousness that is not our own. We need a righteousness that is not earned by our defiled efforts and our diseased fruits. We need a righteousness that is Christ's, that comes from God, that is received on the basis of grace through faith in the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. In other words, we need the gospel. And when we understand this, that our standing before God is not predicated upon our own works, it's not founded upon our own righteousness, but that we have been made, we've been made the recipients of free and unmerited grace, and we have been dressed, not in our own righteousness, not in our own labors, not in our own efforts, but dressed in the perfect righteousness of Christ by mere faith, guess what happens? We become joyful people 
and we're enabled to love sinners. And we'll eat with them. We will delight in Christ who is the friend of sinners and we will be a friend of sinners as well. So point number one, we need to understand that we are sick. We are diseased to the very core of our soul and we need the physician. Do not let your religious pedigree, your church attendance, your Bible knowledge, your Awana patches, your theological and doctrinal orthodoxy blind you to the reality of your sin. You're a sinner and you need the friend of sinners. So come to the physician. Let him heal you. From the inside out. Let him dress you in his righteousness. Then you can know the joy that Levi felt when Jesus called him to follow. A joy that no Pharisee then or now has ever known in spite of all of his doctrinal knowledge and religious attainments. He can't know the joy because he's not free. Then you will know the smiling fellowship of a Savior who ate and drank and laughed at parties rather than the frowning condemnation of a judge who despite all of your best efforts you never can seem to please. Legalists never picture Jesus as smiling and they get a little irritated when he laughs. Beware legalism because it will blind you to the beauty and the glory of the gospel. And it will keep you from the kingdom. The second characteristic of legalists that we can glean from these four encounters is that legalists do not understand the purpose of the spiritual disciplines. I think this is the point of verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts on new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. All right, so Mark begins this encounter by telling us that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. All right, who are these disciples of John? Well, evidently they refer to people who had come out to the Jordan, to the wilderness, to hear John preach had submitted to his baptism, had reoriented his or their lives according to his demands for repentance, but for whatever reason, they had not switched their allegiance and begun to follow Christ as Jesus' own disciples had. You remember, Jesus' disciples started out as John's disciples. But when Jesus came and John pointed at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this is the one of whom I told you I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. A number of them stopped following John and began to follow Jesus. 
This group didn't, and I don't know why, but they're in trouble. Although the Torah required only one fast per year on the Day of Atonement, it was the habit of the Pharisees to fast twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday. One commentator said, although not a legal requirement except in one instance, the Day of Atonement, fasting had become in Jesus' day a prerequisite of religious commitment. There's a troublesome phrase. A prerequisite of religious commitment, a sign of atonement of sin and humiliation and penitence before God, and a general aid to prayer, end quote. So to their mind, all truly holy people fasted twice a week just like them. Now, once again, fasting was a religious act that was performed in order to establish their own righteousness, and therefore it became for them a vehicle of pride and moral superiority. Makes sense of Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount, that when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Why do they fast? In order to be seen. The Pharisees were astounded that anyone purporting to be a rabbi or a prophet or the Messiah would not follow suit. How could anyone be righteous like they were if they didn't fast like they did? Just didn't compute. Now, once again, we see that they had erected an artificial standard of righteousness, and they condemned anyone who did not measure up. And lest you think that this attitude does not pervade today's church, I want you to ask yourself this question. What do you think about someone who doesn't have a daily devotional time? Are they less holy than you? What do you think about someone who doesn't attend church as fastidiously as you do? Are they less holy? It's well known that John Wesley, who I would argue had at times a tenuous grasp of the gospel and was beset by no small amount of legalism, it's well known that he refused to ordain anyone to the ministry in the Methodist church who did not fast every Wednesday and Friday. I'm astounded that he had that requirement with as much of a student of the Scriptures as he was. Now, why wouldn't he? Because obviously, if someone doesn't fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, they're not holy enough to lead a church. That attitude, defining holiness by an artificial and extra-biblical standard, comes dangerously close to the legalism which beset the Pharisees. And Jesus responds to their question, which was really a veiled condemnation, with three short parables. First, he uses the imagery of a wedding. That's verses 19 and 20. He says, the guests at a wedding do not fast when the bridegroom is present. It's not fitting. Fasting is an aid to mourning and repentance over sin, but a wedding is a time of celebration. It's a time for eating and drinking and laughing the time of joy. Fasting belongs with the time of preparation when the bridegroom is absent, but when the bridegroom is present, it's time for feasting. 
the heavenly bridegroom was present among them, and those who recognized him as such simply couldn't fast. Why? They weren't sad. They were happy. They rejoiced. They felt, like Matthew, more like partying than fasting. And Jesus says they're right. Jesus admits, he does admit, that a time is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. He's going to be taken to a cross, then he's going to be taken to the right hand of the Father, and then once again it will be a time of preparation. Beloved, we are in the time of preparation. Preparation for the bridegroom's return. Then, he says, his disciples will fast. Fasting, therefore, is, it's fitting for this age before the second coming of Christ. Not as a means of gaining merit of or, or as a means of establishing one's own righteousness, but rather as a means of preparing oneself for the appearance of the bridegroom who is coming soon. So when should you fast today? I saw when I was preparing this message, I saw a... Uh, a quote come across my Twitter feed from Francis Chan who said, I have found in my experience that when I am abstaining from food, I am more able to abstain from sin. Because there's a link between your body and your soul, your physicality and your spirit. I suggest fasting when you're trying to put a particular sin to death which is preparation for the coming of Christ. When Christ comes, there's going to be no more war against sin. Then it's going to be time for the feast. But for that time, for those three years, it wasn't time to fast. They had the bridegroom among them. Then Jesus switches parables, and he gives a second and a third, one in verse 21, the other in verse 22, and the second and the third make the same point, which is that Jesus and the new covenant that he brings cannot be integrated or affixed to old covenant Judaism. See, the, the covenant which Jesus came to establish is gloriously new, and it cannot simply be added to the old. Old Covenant Judaism is the old garment of verse 21, and it is the old wineskin of verse 22. Jesus and the New Covenant Gospel is the new patch of verse 21 and the new wine of verse 22. And the point is that you cannot merge the old and the new together. The new patch is going to shrink, it's going to pull away from the old garment, and the whole thing's going to be destroyed. The new wine is going to ferment, and it's going to burst the old wineskin, and both will be ruined. Jesus will not be integrated into the old Pharisaic system. He requires a new garment, a new wineskin. So all of the rules and all of the regulations that governed old covenant Judaism, rules about fasting and praying and ritual defilement, all of those found both in the Torah and in the tradition, those have to be set aside in favor of the new covenant. New covenant worship, the new covenant church, and the new covenant gospel. So let's take that and let's return to the issue of fasting. 
Fasting is a spiritual discipline. Fasting is a means of grace. It's like a bucket that you take to the well of God's grace and you use it to draw forth the joyful, refreshing waters of mercy. That's the purpose of all of the spiritual disciplines. Bible reading, prayer, worship, preaching, baptism, the Lord's Supper, fasting, any of them. They are not mechanistic means of achieving merit. It's not a spiritual religious checklist. It's not a time card that you've got to punch and which you turn in at the end of your life in order to receive wages. The spiritual disciplines are a means of entering into the presence of God's blessing and His grace and His freedom and His joy. Fasting has its purpose. It focuses prayer. It sharpens conviction. It intensifies repentance. If you find yourself unable to mourn over your sin, fast. Fasting is a gift given by God for the receiving of His mercy. It is not a work given to God in order to put Him in our debt and force Him to pay us our due. That's why fasting was not fitting for Jesus' disciples while Jesus was with them. The spiritual disciplines are means of grace which God has given us to draw near to Christ, and they were already near Him. I suppose it would be sort of like, I mean, the disciples fasting in the presence of Jesus would be sort of like them reading the Bible in the presence of Jesus. Why would they read their Bibles when they had Jesus there to teach them in person? But we do not have Jesus with us in the flesh. He is not here to teach us in person, so we fast and we pray and we read the scriptures and we gather for worship and we sit under the preaching of the word, and we observe baptism, and we partake of the Lord's table, and we do so until the bridegroom comes back. But we don't do it as Pharisees. Which means we do not fast, we do not pray, we do not read our Bibles, we do not come to church, we do not take the Lord's Supper in order to establish our own righteousness and punch our religious time clock so that God will give us our paycheck. And we do not use the spiritual disciplines to erect an artificial standard of holiness by which we determine whether or not other people measure up. That would be like sewing a new patch on an old garment or putting new wine in an old wineskin. It ruins the garment and it bursts the skin. It turns spiritual disciplines, means of grace, into a means of sin, and it produces arrogant, boastful, mean-spirited, proud, judgmental Pharisees dressed in Christian garb who know their Bibles and hate Jesus and don't love sinners. There are churches like that. So I want you to ask yourself, why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why, do you, why are you here today? Is it because you expect God to do something for you when you hand Him your works? Or do you come here to drink of His grace? Take heed to your heart this morning, beloved. 
And beware that you do not approach the spiritual disciplines as a religious checklist rather than a means of grace. Because that kind of religion results only in ruined garments, burst wineskins, and proud, joyless, judgmental church members, and it does not save. A church like ours, morally conservative, biblically faithful, I hope, theologically reformed, doctrinally orthodox, listen, all good things. Church like ours is especially susceptible to the sin of legalism. We may not struggle with the temptations and errors that beset other churches, uh, sins of moral and doctrinal compromise. I'd be willing to bet that our church is not likely to waffle on the definition of marriage or the deity and exclusivity of Christ. That's not where our temptations are going to come in. But while we're guarding the front door against such moral and doctrinal compromise, we need to take special care that we don't allow legalism in the back door and destroy us from within. Take heed to your heart. I'll close with a parable that we'll pick up with next week. This is a parable that Jesus told to some who, quote, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Why don't you bow and just listen. Hear the words of Christ. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Interestingly, the same two men who are present at Levi's party The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Beloved, do not exalt yourself by trying to perform moral or religious works in the power of your own strength for the purpose of establishing your own righteousness to the end that you would merit from God His blessing and grace. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Beat your breast at the back of the temple and cry out from the depth of your soul, For the mercy of God. God be merciful to me. The sinner. Those. Are the ones who go home justified. Be. Justified. By faith. 